This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. Today, we are doing another edition of Not FinTech Investment Advice, which must mean that we are joined by everyone's favorite FinTech newsletter writer, FinTech thinker, dreamer of FinTech dreams, the man who ChatGPT finds to be both brilliant and handsome, Simon Taylor. Simon, thank you for coming back. Crow understands that certain moments matter more for fintech companies, whether it's partnering with a bank, moving into a new market, or going public. Visit www.crow.com fintech to discover how Crow can help fintech companies like yours find value in volatility. Thanks for having me, Alex. You are the world's nicest human, but ChatGPT is the world's nicest bot. It's so eager to please... And sometimes you just got to remind it, like, be meaner. Like, I, I never thought <laughs> I'd go through the world telling AI to be meaner to me and be more objective, like, gut check me. Um, but here we are to gut check each other and to challenge each other and to learn and to stay curious about all things fintech. I'm excited to be back. Good to see you, sir. Excellent. Good to see you too. I am uh, also very excited. I think this is the sort of episode that we'll be recording before fun travel busy season picks up again. So I'm sure there'll be lots of new ideas and new companies and things that we come across in the wild as we get back out there. But it's good to pause and take a break before we do that. As a reminder to everyone listening, we are going to run through some fintech companies that we find interesting this podcast is aptly titled Not Fintech Investment Advice because this is not fintech investment advice. Simon and I will talk about companies that we find interesting. That interest often runs, I'm not going to say counter to commercial interest, but certainly sort of uncorrelated from it. So Simon, I don't think you're trying to necessarily give any specific investment advice here. Is that fair? No, far from it. I do have, like, spoiler alert, one company this week that I do have a very small angel check-in. So, like, disclosure season. Um, <laughs> there's a little bit there. So I'll explain why I got excited by that. But aside from that, for the most part, no, it, it's no commercial interest. And it's only can be brought to this show. I said only, really weird. It can only be only. brought to this Yeah, Only. It's like an owl <laughs> that can only do things. It can only be brought to this show if it's curious and it's teaching us something. What did it teach us? What did we learn from it? And how could you use that in your day job, fintech founder? How could you use that inside of a bank? And I think that's what, why I love this show, man. I appreciate it. Well, awesome. I appreciate your enthusiasm as always. And, and my inability to speak. Which, considering I'm British, you'd think I'd be okay at that. It's like my one thing. I feel like maybe you're just sort of like trying to make me feel better since I don't have a really cool accent. So you're going to sort of trip over some words, stumble across a couple of familiar vowels that you should know, but are pretending that you don't. So I appreciate you doing that for me. It builds up my confidence. I'm feeling really good right now. So um, do you mind if I go first? Uh, please. I mean, it would be rude not to, and I'm British, so I can't be rude. So. Well, <laughs> okay, fair enough. We, as always, appreciate that. Okay, so my first company is one called Parallel, and they are in the business of streamlining and improving financial forecasting, specifically for companies trying to figure out what their costs around headcount will be. So 
as readers of my newsletter will know, and Simon, I think you share my interest in this, I'm fascinated by the corporate spend management and corporate card space, perhaps the hottest corner of fintech in terms of money, investment, shipping new features. And one of the things I've noticed about that area is that they always talk about the different types of corporate spend in different ways, depending on sort of how they're tackling it. So obviously, they talk about accounts payable. They talk about, in the case of someone like a Navon travel and how big a sort of component of corporate spend travel is. You know, increasingly, these companies are focused on helping to make the procurement process more intelligent or in Ramp's case, actually trying to help you like negotiate contracts with software vendors. So there's all of these different categories of corporate spend that companies in this space are going after. One that you don't hear as much about, which I find fascinating, is headcount, which is ironic because the number one line item for all companies is headcount. That's what you spend all of your money on. And in a certain sense, I get it, right? Because you're not going to apply the same types of ramp-like controls to headcount and go, oh, yeah, this person, Alex, was kind of slacking off this week, so we're going to cut his salary by you know, 3% in order to optimize. Like Those type of controls don't really make sense in a headcount environment. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't financial challenges from a forecasting and planning and CFO perspective around headcount. There are. And so what Parallel is trying to solve for is that gap that exists. And Simon, I'm sure you've probably experienced this working at sort of larger companies, maybe. There's always like budget season. And so you go into budget season and everyone sits down and kind of has a good natured or less good natured debate about who's getting more headcount, who's not getting more headcount, maybe where we need to cut back. And at the end of that sort of bloodbath, everyone comes out with a plan for what you're going to do. And at that moment, the company knows fairly well what its outlay for headcount expenses is going to look like. However, things change things constantly change throughout the year. As soon as you walk out of that room, things have changed and they need to be adjusted. And the contention that the team at Parallel is making is that all of those adjustments that happen are all things that happen ad hoc. They happen when someone pulls someone else into a conference room and says, hey, I really need this thing. And there's all of these sort of ad hoc, one-off decisions that are made to adjust headcount expenses in order to deal with the reality of running your business. And the challenge is none of those conversations and none of that data gets captured from a financial planning and forecasting perspective. And so what Parallel is offering is essentially a system of record type application where the goal and what it's designed for is to capture all of those conversations and be a place that can sort of centralize all of the ongoing throughout the year discussions around headcount and how to adjust that plan such that you have a system of record that can then feed into all of the financial planning and forecasting tools that the CFO and the finance department use to manage that company's spend over time. So I thought this was really a very interesting niche that was kind of unfilled in a relatively populous space. I would expect that we'll probably see this type of solution or something in this area pop up, given how many products and features there are constantly being built in the corporate spend management space. And I don't know, maybe this is a feature, maybe this is a company, maybe this is a company that gets acquired by one of the other companies in this space. But uh, it certainly seemed to stand out. What's your sort of first reaction to that one? Ooh, this is good timing, isn't it? Yeah. So first question actually is, who's this for? Because you mentioned big companies and budget season. I'm guessing not really big companies. I heard you talk and I was thinking 
hundred million dollar run rate SaaS company to maybe fifty million dollar run rate SaaS company fintech company who maybe has been through the past six months has uh, last twelve months has had some headcount reduction, has learned some lessons along the way, is now thinking, oh, I need to be a bit smarter about how I hire. Is that the core audience here? That's my understanding. Yeah, kind of the indicator I was getting, just sort of reading some articles about what they're doing. These guys are based out of Utah. At least one of the founders comes from Divi, so it comes out of this sort of corporate spend management and corporate card space. And yeah, they kind of indicated that there's that moment when the company goes from, oh, this is a really easy problem to manage and all of the executives are all like very tight-knit and it's very, very easy to hitting that next stage of growth where things start to get a bit more decentralized and headcount in particular becomes something that's a little bit more of a fractured planning process rather than a unified planning process. How many companies can you name that either in the public markets or privately have been through layoffs and have a CEO that came out and said something like, yeah, we hired ahead of demand and the demand stopped coming? Yes, yes. It's pretty much uncountable, right? And like that I think is kind of, and it's interesting, right? Because that's the exact right question to ask in terms of, is this company and their value proposition focused on like creating a unified infrastructure to make every single hiring decision in a completely like centralized controlled fashion? No, I don't think so. And I don't think companies would want to do that. But you do get the sense to your point, listening to some of those comments where the CEO never quite comes out and says this, but they kind of are basically admitting, yeah, we hired more people than even I knew we were hiring is kind of the subtext of a lot of those conversations, right? Like, hiring got away from me is kind of the thing that they're admitting without admitting that. And I think this is functionally designed to be a tool to try to stop that from happening. Which gives it great timing, ultimately, because now there's a lot of people going, oh, crap, I need to get a hold of this. So as you were talking, I imagine two things. One, knowing the velocity at which ramp ships, I can imagine them Somebody at Ramp will listen to this podcast and it'll be live in a week. So is it a feature or a business? (laughs) Right, right. Let's see. But I also found a blog post from Rippling, who are one of the HR, talent, IT, finance, operating system types companies, but especially strong in technology, who've done a lot in fintech. Like these guys have a spend management platform. So they've gotten into that, yeah. Mm -hmm. In that direction. Now, they're really well-placed to do something like this because they're launching a product called Runway, which does scenario planning. It's in beta for uh, at the moment, but it does scenario planning not just for headcount forecasting, but where you invest in marketing and all kinds of stuff. And you can start to dial things up and down. And what if I get this funding round? What if I don't? What if my sales come in here? And so that just feels like the right place to do it. And what we're doing is we're sort of backing into reinventing the ERP or enterprise resource planning. So you're probably familiar with, you know, like Oracle and SAP and these giant, like if you've ever done expenses at a bank, that horrible system that you had to use, that's also the system they use for procurement. That's also the system that at some point is probably managing payroll and it's probably managing accounts and all oracle expense management is like the worst software i've ever used by far it was like designed to torture human beings it was insane and these things are almost impossible to replace because they're so woven into the the skeleton they're the circulatory system they're the spinal fluid of the entire 
organism of the operating system of, of what they run. And yep. so Rippling is sort of moving towards becoming that, but so are the spend management platforms in some degree. So, you know, is it a feature or a product? Sort of doesn't matter. The timing for this as a wedge is really, really good. And I can see the market demand for this being really, really valuable because the amount of companies that were like, oh, well, we could just build it that didn't have a CFO saying, but should you build it? Because if you build it, you're going to need a team to maintain it so it might cost you two million to build it, but then it's going to cost you two million a year to run it just to keep the thing up to date. And so these trade-offs, these lessons learned can be really, really powerful times to launch a new product. I wish them well. I like the name Parallel. What do you think that means? You know, I was wondering about that myself. I, if I had to guess, what I would say is that that fractured hiring process where everyone kind of goes to the meeting and goes, yep, this is what we're going to do. And then as soon as they walk out the meeting, things start to change. All of those hiring decisions are getting made in parallel. And so you go from a single unified decision-making process to branching out to a whole bunch of processes that are happening at the same time to the CEO having to go on a Zoom call and explain how his company managed to overhire way too much. So managing that parallel process, maybe? I don't know. I'm a sucker for a good fintech name, and I do like this one. That'd be my guess. Does that make sense to you? It really does make sense. I think Alex renames or comes up with origin stories for fintech companies <laughs> could be a fun spin-out show sometime. I will have to do that at some point. I've uh, gotten myself in a decent amount of trouble for ranking logos, so <laughs> wading into fintech names feels like the right next step for me. Speaking of fintech names, do you have another fintech name to share with us, Simon? Yeah, so... It's Gen AI season. Don't know if you've noticed. I um, have noticed. I've been collecting them in my blog and the four fintech companies. And there's a couple I'm, I'm going to highlight this week. So spoiler alert. But the first one is called Chart. This one I have no affiliation with, just FYI. I haven't met the founders. But what does Chart do? It helps regulated companies like banks, fintech companies, insurers, or healthcare providers ensure all internal comms, chatbots, Customer service or customer service teams meet relevant compliance obligations. So it takes unstructured data like call transcripts, Teams messages, emails to scan for any number of regulations. And this is kind of interesting because it's not like we'll do SEC compliance or we'll do UDAP compliance or insert your regulation here. But let's use the worked example like UDAP or unfair and deceptive actions and practices, I think it is. The catch-all like consumer fairness regulation from the CFPB. Yep. We have a similar one in the UK called consumer duty, which just about every bank in the world in the UK is panicking over how they're going to prove they're being fair to consumers and they're following consumer duty. So this service essentially is a really, really hard thing to figure out from Every every agent call, every collections call, every chatbot, how do you do it? Well, today there's companies like Global Relay, which are like platforms that let you do this analysis, but there ends up being so much busy work. What you're actually doing is you're sampling a few conversations and then you're even outsourcing that work to somebody else. So do you actually know if most of the communications you're having most of the time are compliant? And how do you know if any of this is going to turn into a complaint at the end of it? So what they do is they provide this Gen AI for compliance that provides instant visibility and alerts to manage essentially what could be 
10, 20, 30 different relevant regulations to any customer interaction. So I think that's really interesting. Thinking about comms as a horizontal and regulations as a slightly separate thing is a really interesting way to start. And that kind of got me thinking, we're almost seeing just in fintech, like Gen AI for compliance task X is a whole category. Most Gen AI for compliance task tends to be very... You know, it's SEC compliance or it's UDAP compliance. So it's they've picked a regulation and they've gone deep on it. This has picked an activity and it's gone wide on it. And so that stood out to me. And that was like an insight that I went, ooh, curious. Thoughts, questions, comments. I like it. Yeah, no, this makes sense to me. I mean, I the thing I was initially thinking when you were talking about it was just this idea that like there mm. are unfair problems facing companies in financial services, right? Where it's like the deck is sort of, the deck is stacked against us on this one, right? So in this particular case, yes, yes, yes. Okay, right. So the deck is stacked against us because (laughs) in this particular case, we're having thousands, millions of interactions with customers across a huge number of different channels. We record, we transcribe, we capture all of those interactions because we're required to because we need to, you know, keep a record of all of those. And we have no ability to monitor all of those conversations. So it might say, you know, this call is being recorded for customer service, blah, blah, blah. But like, no one's actually listening to that, right? There's no ability to listen to all of that. However, just so you know, Mr. Bank, any of those interactions could trigger a customer complaint. And that customer complaint can work its way all the way back to you And there's going to be a trail leading all the way back to this interaction that you might never catch or monitor or look at in a million years, but turns out that's where your problem is, right? So it's this like massive sort of unequal thing where every one of your customers, if they have a problem, can trigger a process that comes immediately back to the source, but you have no ability to monitor the source of all of these interactions. And so I love these big, hairy, unstructured data problems Compliance is a good one too, right? Because if I'm understanding the way you're describing it correctly, you're going to use a large language model as a base to sort of just be able to understand natural language and be able to kind of churn through all this unstructured natural language data. But the training that you're going to layer on top of it is going to be, here are these very specific things that we're not allowed to do. And these are the patterns that you're looking for, right? And I think one thing people don't maybe haven't fully wrapped their heads around as it relates to generative AI is it can be very loose and flexible in terms of the input, but you as the one training it have to be extraordinarily prescriptive with what you're looking for it to find. And so compliance is a really cool one because lots of unstructured natural language that can trigger compliance problems because you're having all these different interactions, but very hyper-specific guidance and rules for what you need to watch out for and look for. So The combination of those two things makes a ton of sense to me. I heard a a great phrase earlier today, and and apologies, I'll I'll try and credit the author, but it described a vanilla large language model as being like an alien genie that is eager to please. So (laughs) because it's a genie, you've got to be careful what you wish for. And because it's an alien, it just doesn't have your context. It's really, really smart. But it doesn't have your context. So the more complex your prompt, the more context you give it, the better your results are going to be and the better your wish is going to be. You know, you're granting wishes here. One way to 
embed that context. Embeddings is with a vector database, which a lot of these companies do. Many of them have even started fine-tuning some of the underlying models. Some of them are even creating their own models where it's necessary. And that's what gives you this compliance overview. And these use cases where you're looking for a needle in the haystack, there aren't enough hours in the day to possibly find the needles in the haystack. But my God, there are so many haystacks. (laughs) How are you ever going to find it? And pull one out for people that work in these departments that often get outsourced and cost-managed and not cared about and not held up as the heroes trying to keep things compliant. I was talking to somebody very senior at a bank recently who was talking about the UK equivalent to UDAP called Consumer Duty. And one of the things they said is, you know, everything about this is like looking for where we get it wrong. There's no prize for us for being able to demonstrate where we've done this really well. Well, we have proactively gone out of our way to do something that is really, really good for customers, zero upside. Yeah. Where we might have accidentally messed up or where we've messed up at all, we're going to be punished for that. But yeah. the prize for like a star performance, you're know, like the best performance on earth. If we were just amazing at this most of the time and really push the boundaries of what's possible, zero upside, no profit, no revenue, no tax break, nothing. And so helping people with the fact that this is a, a manufacturing process, great number one. And then also like really having empathy for how hard this job is, number two. Like I, I just think that psychology of incentives is so important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Well, and I kind of wonder if over time we can kind of flip those incentives on their head a little bit, right? Because it's like the old model was you, ha- you the company, have no ability to sort of oversee all of this stuff proactively. We, the regulators, can only listen to what customers are telling us in terms of input into what's maybe going wrong at the company. And that creates a very sort of adversarial thing where it's like, we're not doing anything bad. And then someone says, oh, we got you. And it's like, there's a very sort of natural adversarial function here. And obviously there's always going to be a bit of an adversarial nature between banks and regulators. But I do like the idea of being able to say, look, this is the process. We now have the capacity to oversee this much more proactively than we used to. We are going to proactively share with you what we are seeing. And if you bring us something that comes from a customer, obviously we want to know about that. But that interaction is going to be totally different because instead of you coming to us and saying, hey, this customer said they have a problem, surprise, here, go find out what happened because you're in trouble, we can go to you and say, hey, this customer had a problem. And the hope would be that the company can say, we know exactly what you're talking about. We identified that six weeks ago. It resulted because of this problem. Here are the remediation steps we're already taking. And as you'll see, we've actually already reached out to that customer, but obviously we want to make sure we make this right. Like, it flips that whole dynamic on its head. And I've had a bunch of conversations with banks and with regulators where there's actually a lot of excitement about technology playing a role in sort of changing the nature of that conversation and making it more of like a proactive management problem rather than a, you know, crime and punishment problem, which is kind of how it's been so far. It has. One of my first days of working in a bank, um, somebody was going in to meet a regulator and they described it as a zero upside meeting. Yeah. The best that can happen is I'm exactly where I was when I walked in. The worst that can happen is we all lose our jobs. And I was like, wow, you know, like this is, so that that's what's sitting across from the other side of the table regulator. And I know you're trying to do your job. And then on the regulator side of it, they have even worse data than the bank does. They're getting PDFs of a report from somewhere else and a customer complaint and trying to figure out what the heck goes on. And they're on the hook. 
And everybody forgets that that job is public service. You are not extremely highly paid like you are in the private sector. You're often doing it because you really care about this topic. And then you go in and you're always the bad guy, no matter what you're trying to do, no matter what your incentives are. And sometimes you're also exposed to worst behavior. So you get this confirmation bias of look how much bad behavior there is because you're seeing bad things all the time. It's Oh, uh, there's a whole... Com- One day I'm going to launch a podcast called The Hope Series, and I'm toying with the <laughs> yeah. idea of, of calling it Carrot as well, because everything at the moment from an incentive standpoint in fintech is stick and yeah. no carrot. You know, like, let's bring back some hope. Let's see what's possible. No, I love it. That's great. I mean, I... Uh... Such a much uh, more optimistic framing for generative AI and all the scary stuff you see is like, maybe you can bring a little sort of hope and like better incentives for how we all interact with each other. Because, you know, again, we're all trying to save money. We're all trying to save time. We're all trying to stop bad things from happening. We're all on the same page. So I completely agree with that. Somewhat of a good lead in actually to my second company. Can I give this one to you? Please do. Roll it out. Okay. This one is called Chargeflow, and as you may be able to discern from the name, this is one of the many, many companies out there trying to help merchants deal with chargebacks. So this is a very, very popular category of fintech innovation. It has been for years, well before even fintech as a broad category sort of really took off. Merchants have had just a terrible time dealing with chargebacks for a very long time. Chargeflow, the reason they sort of stood out to me when I was looking around for a company to feature in this podcast was relatively new, youngish company using AI and machine learning to essentially fully automate the process of fighting chargebacks. So you see lots of other companies in this space focused on preventing chargebacks. You see a lot of companies in this space focused on sort of streamlining the process that merchants have to go through, or quite frankly, that issuers have to go through in managing the chargeback process. But you don't see as many companies, you see some, but you don't see as many focused on just fully knocking out the process of dealing with chargebacks. And I, the reason I think this is kind of interesting is it seems like philosophically almost a different view into the problem, right? Which is before, I think the model was, oh, you know, chargebacks are sort of a problem that if we could just get like better process or better technology or better detection of potential issues, we could just like eliminate chargebacks as a problem. And so like get chargebacks down to zero or just like, you know, stop your chargeback problem from even happening. That I think has been the mindset for a long time. And I kind of sense that with companies like this, we're sort of on the precipice of a shift in mindset to chargebacks are always going to be a problem. And in fact, chargebacks will probably become a increasingly large problem over time, not necessarily because of like a growing problem with like fraud or other issues, but more just because chargebacks are sort of the outcome of a set of rules that govern interactions. And those interactions are becoming more complex. There's subscription payments, there's one-time virtual cards, there's agents acting on behalf of customers, signing up for different products or canceling different products. And so chargebacks as a mechanism, that's like almost the exhaust that comes out of this massive commerce engine that we're building and constantly improving on. So we're not really going to reduce chargebacks, nor necessarily should that be the goal. The goal should be to not make a human being working at an e-commerce company have to spend one to two hours dealing with each one of these chargebacks manually. And so the 
premise for ChargeFlow is we're going to use AI and machine learning to help automatically gather all of the evidence necessary to fight this chargeback. We are going to identify the right sort of category code under which to file this dispute against this chargeback. And then we're actually going to automate the process of filing that. And our business model is going to be based on the fact that we're only going to charge when we successfully help you overturn a chargeback. So it's dealing with that chargeback issue for merchants, but it's really trying to take a full, all the way through the last mile automation approach. And it kind of paints a picture to me of like a future where you have AI and machine learning and bots working on behalf of customers, filing chargebacks or trying to like get the best outcome for consumers and merchants employing their own machines battling back and forth with each other. So That was the vision of the future I saw when I was looking at this one. Again, like I said, very popular category. There's actually another company in this space already that's a couple of years older called Just that does, from what I can tell, almost exactly the same thing. So by no means a unique idea, but as a category within the broader chargeback universe, I thought it was kind of interesting. Simon, I know you spend some time in the fraud world these days. What jumps out to you here? I can see the why now really stands out. And so post-pandemic, friendly fraud has risen dramatically and fraud has gone global. So you see that like nearly 90% of all fraud is, quote, friendly fraud. Now, this is either an account that's been taken over or it is actually a consumer going, oopsie, didn't mean to buy that. Right, right. Um, I'm going to issue a chargeback or oopsie, I couldn't find where the cancel subscription button was on Netflix. So I just issued a chargeback or genuinely, oh my God, I'm in so much financial trouble. I'm going to hit this chargeback button and see if I can get out of this hell I'm in right now. And so You see all of this, especially in a cost of living crisis with rising inflation. These are all contributing to an absolute explosion in chargebacks for merchants. So this, the why now completely makes sense for me. And then there's a lot of chargeback specialists out there. Sometimes just saying the word a lot generates people going, oh, that really hurts me because that's their day job. And it's a big part of it. Soup's at Um, My day job, Sardine, the CEO of Sardine, has a great saying, which is nearly all fraud problems are data problems, and nearly all data problems need more data that needs to be cleaner, and then you can actually do something with it. And the thing that the head of fraud at a merchant is doing more often than not is trying to dispute a chargeback. And why are they trying to dispute it? Because they're liable for them. (laughs) So if you're sitting there and you're a merchant, or even if you're a, a fintech wallet that lets people load via using their card, you're going to get hit by this so hard. It's unbelievable. And the only you're going to, that's boom, you're out of pocket. Somebody on their credit card hit that chargeback button or some frauds to hit that chargeback button. And that is your loss unless you go complain about it to Visa and MasterCard or whoever the cards network is. And your complaint has to be really good. Yeah. It has to present evidence in a certain set of ways. It has to be compelling. It has to be direct. So you are like behind the eight ball the entire time. You've got a lot of work to do. Wouldn't it? Be? And most of that is manual. And it takes people who know what they're dealing with. But they're doing the same thing time after time after time. I was listening to a uh, a head of fraud at one very large UK e-commerce retailer who said, we have templates for the top like 100 types of chargeback we see. 
and we just edit little bits of it. Well, that's essentially that system that she happened to build because she was like naturally that way minded isn't something every e-commerce merchant has, isn't something every fintech company has. Wouldn't it be great if Gen AI could pull all of that together for you and start to, to automate it? So I see it. Again, disclosure, I work at Sardine, they pay my bills, but this is a feature on our roadmap. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a feature on everybody's roadmap because it's such a big issue. But like I said, sometimes being called, you know, naming the company after chargebacks with charge flow really will get a lot of attention. And I think this is much, 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 much needed. Do they have any customers? Where are they at in their journey? And are you hearing similar things as you walk around the industry? Crow gets fintech. For decades, Crow specialists have watched this industry evolve and helped companies navigate the moments that matter most. Whether finding new sources of funding to fuel growth or responding to complex regulations. Visit www.crow.com fintech to find out how Crow works with fintech companies like yours to help uncover value in volatility. I'm definitely hearing the same exact thing. I mean, it's a problem that continues to get bigger. There is something very just in the water right now about friendly fraud kind of just exploding. And I think you, know, you painted a really good picture when you were talking about chargebacks, right? I mean, like, a chargeback is a meant to be a very blunt last resort kind of tool at a network level. But the more it's sort of become aware for like as a tool for consumers, the more sort of aware they've become of it, the more they keep reaching for that giant hammer when they should be picking up other tools or we should be building other tools to give them, right? Because to your point, if it's a financial health related objection to paying this thing, that's different than I accidentally pressed this button, which is different than I don't want to wrestle with the dark patterns that are preventing me from unsubscribing from this thing that I didn't want to really subscribe for in the first place, which is different than me actually committing a friendly fraud. And so there's all of these different flavors of chargebacks and going to the soups quote, those are all slightly different data problems that are at a high level look the same and are all coming back to the merchant from a, hey, this just triggered a chargeback. So here's what you have to deal with. But being able to sort of sort through the nuances there and being able to figure out which ones should we really fight, which ones are not worth our time, which ones is there just really not very good evidence of. And yeah, it's just like this really fascinating data science problem. And I think the other thing that these guys talk about, and to answer your question, I think they're fairly early in their journey, although it does look like they do have some customers listed on their website. Again, very sort of e-commerce focused. Interestingly, a lot of the companies that are in this space are based in Israel. So I'm not sure what it is about that sort of overlap that makes for really like focused on fighting fraud and friendly fraud. You get a lot of ex-military. Yeah, so yeah. you find that generally when it comes to cyber, Israel is one of the talent hotbeds of the whole totally. world. So yeah. people come out of having worked for the Israeli military and then go build a startup in that sort of expertise. Con fairly consistent pattern. Yeah, no, they seem to be very good at it because I think it's really interesting. The other thing they talk a little bit about on their website is this ability to have like deep system integrations. So again, like data problems. So you need to be able to source all of the right data and evidence from all of the different systems that you're interacting with in order to be able to make the best case possible. And I kind of wonder if over time, what you'll also see are 
AI systems that are almost designed to make recommendations for how you should tweak your e-commerce stack and all the different systems you have to sort of slowly incentivize the right behaviors that you see, right? So like almost oh, more of a, like a diagnostic tool, right? Where it's like, hey, you're generating a lot of chargebacks. We're seeing good win rates here. We're seeing not so good win rates here. Here are three things you could do to tweak this system in order to generate better evidence or maybe just discourage this particular kind of behavior or whatever the like particular things are. But I like the idea of a chargeback being the customer raising their hand and going, something here is wrong. And then using AI to sort of figure out what is that thing that's gone wrong? And is it something we should fight? Is it something we should fix? Is it something that we should let go? To me, that's kind of the end state that we're building towards. And this is like one step in that direction. We talked a little bit earlier about incentives. So e-commerce merchants tend to think about uh, this whole problem space of chargebacks or checkout as being uh, either a conversion problem or a chargeback problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can almost right. split people into two. So there's the person who's on the hook for revenue who sees the conversion issue, and there's the person who's on the hook for fraud losses who sees the chargeback issue. So historically, the old model was, I let more people in the front door and I have more people, more chargebacks at the back end, or I let less people in the front door. Maybe I have less revenue, but I have less losses. And that that was the age-old trade-off. But again, like a lot of the biggest e-commerce merchants, either they're working with the same fraud vendor they used for the last 10, 20 years, or they're taking the default option from their payments processes. Yeah. There are massive exceptions to this rule. But a lot of those providers grew up with the days of e-commerce in the early days. And so people haven't gone and gone, hey, should we change this? And that data problem you talk about, this is the issue. I mean, I know Trisha at Unit 21 has talked about this. I know Tom at Alloy has talked about it. So I'm really trying to avoid yeah. just selling Zardini. This is something that you see a lot of is that the traditional providers were black boxes and they'd give you a score. They'd go, this is a chargeback, yes or no. You just kind of had to trust it. So this data problem of like, okay, I'm going to work with charge flow, but what data am I giving them? What compelling evidence am I giving them to fight this chargeback really does need you to look at that stack and go like, who plays well with others? Should I be using something that does play well with others? Should I go through the pain of actually changing something core to my payment stack that came from my payments processor, which will take a lot of time and energy. And is that going to help me increase conversion? Is that going to help me reduce chargebacks? And am I confident that this is the thing I should be focused on, given the thousands of things as I have as, a, as an e-commerce merchant to worry about? I think being able to sort of take those things you should be thinking about and sort of surface them at the top of the list and go, here's the thing you should really be thinking about. Again, tying back to generative AI, like that ability to sort of bring the most relevant things to the top for people to look at, that to me seems so core to solving this problem. Speaking of Gen AI, I know you're sort of on a roll, so I'll let you finish up with one more uh, company on your list. Yeah, so this one I do have a small angel check-in, so disclosure. This is that the first said, time I think we've had that one. Is This is the know, first one where it actually... That's pretty good, right? That's not that's bad. Like... That's not bad. Okay, so like not fintech investment advice, but a little bit fintech investment advice. Okay, go ahead, Simon. But consider the source. Yeah, exactly. Consider the source, uh, yes. So why did I get excited? So the company's called Cascading.ai. So Cascading builds AI agents 
for banks and fintech companies and credit unions to automate middle and back office processes. So let's assume I have a lending origination system, a system of record. And that system of record, I'm not going to replace that in the next five to 10 years. But I have a whole bunch of manual tasks that agents are doing. So they might be guiding an applicant through the loan process, or I might have to upload proof of income or proof of address. I might have to send emails and SMSs. I might have to do all kinds of tasks that are just sort of dealing with this horrible UI of this internal system that I can't change, but I need this thing in order to do business. And it deals with a lot of unstructured data and I have a human doing that. And I might have outsourced it um, to a contact sensor at the other side of the world. I might have tried to outsource that as much as possible or reduce that cost. But this is flipping from outsourcing to AI sourcing. And I started, what this made me think about is, do you remember the era where Citibank accidentally sent somebody $900 million? Revlon, right? Yep, I remember. Revlon. I don't know what their tagline is, but it would really fit here. So (laughs) (laughs) something about they made that a lot better. So they were supposed to pay $7 million. But if you look at the Oracle FlexCube screen that the poor agent was supposed to use. That is the most confusing UI I have ever seen. I have a keynote I gave at DevCon where I actually put that screen up as a classic example of the types of things that are often offshored to people that frankly run the world economy and don't get enough love in some offshore contact center. And they have something called a six eyes process, which sounds like something from a Bond film, but it's not nearly (laughs) as cool. So the six eyes process typically means somebody will create a payment, somebody will check a payment, and then a second person will check what the checker did, which is kind of common. Like if you've worked in a bank, the amount of processes this is actually true for, four eyes and six eyes, it's unbelievable. Now, you would think that the UI paths of the world would have robotic process automationed all of this stuff away, but they can't. Why? Because this is an incredibly context-specific task. This payment for this customer at this time depends on this document because, and, oh, well, this document, this PDF says this one thing, so I actually have to do this process slightly different this time because... It's something that's very hard to build a workflow for, but it's something that Gen AI is actually really, really good at. So the amount of credit unions, the amount of fintech companies, the amount of banks that have all of these schleps is unbelievable. So essentially this is saying, if you have a technology stack that's not going to go away anytime soon, but you need to have massively more efficient operations, this is an option for you to consider. So that's cascading. I like it. Well, okay. So you picked a good one for your first one that you did write an angel check into because I I think this one is fantastic. I really like it. The thing it makes me think of is, I think it was Sarah Hinkfuss at Bain who first put this on my radar when she was talking about generative AI. But one thing they've talked a lot about is the idea of gen AI as a disruptive innovation versus a sustaining innovation and sort of making the case that for the most part, it's probably likely to be more of a sustaining innovation and that it'll assist market incumbents with sort of sustaining their advantage in the market. And to me, this is a really good example of that, right? Where it's like, if I'm, I'll just pick on like credit unions. I love that they have credit unions as one of the explicit groups that they're trying to serve. 
you're getting all of your software from probably a QSO that you're working with. You have one of three options. And once you pick one of those options, that sort of determines all of the potential upgrades and things that you can pick down that path forever. And unless you really have a massive budget or an appetite to switch from that to something else, you're stuck with the systems that you have and you can't really do much about that. And what I have observed at Al, you just lending as an example, since I know that space really well, is that you have this system in place that automates certain steps and doesn't automate others. And then you wrap people around that system in order to fully get to the last mile of actually being able to produce loans. And as a result, and lending is cyclical, when the market cools off, you fire or downsize some of those people. When the market warms back up and there's a huge amount of demand, you hire a bunch of people and you wrap them around that system. And that's not a very scalable way to do it. It's not really a very humane way to do it, but it's the way that commercial lending works. It's the way that mortgage lending works. It's the way that auto lending works. Like That's the way that a lot of particularly complex lending where you're interacting with the system, it's automating certain steps, but it's not automating others. And there's a lot of like context. There's a lot of documents. There's a lot of unstructured data. So I love the idea of being able to say, look, you don't want to tear out the system that you have in place. Maybe you can't tear out the system that you have in place, but you don't have to have human beings suffer interacting with the system. And you don't need to do the complex process of trying to figure out how many people do we need to hire? How can we scale up? How can we take advantage of this moment of opportunity in the market? You can just automate, maybe not even all of it, but like 90% of the sort of grunt work that goes into having customers interact with the system or having customer service agents interact with the system or having loan officers interact with the system. So I really like that. I think that's a really interesting way of flipping it on its head and saying, look, just the reality is most of these systems aren't going to get ripped out. And I think the other thing, and this is maybe not a very popular thought in fintech is maybe not a lot of these systems should get ripped out, right? Jason Mikula and I did our interview with Mark Gould, the chief payments executive at the Federal Reserve, talking about FedNow. And he was saying that he was like, yeah, the other day we processed like $5 trillion in payments or something like that. And like I fell out of my chair because like all of these systems that we sort of make fun of and are like, oh, this is so antiquated, they handle massive volume and never screw up, right? And so as slow as they are, as inflexible as they are, they passed the Lindy law of like, they've been around for a long time, which means they're probably going to be around for a long time because they were really built to last. And I like the idea of being able to say, we can get a lot of use out of these systems without suffering the downsides by wrapping generative AI around them. So no, this is super intriguing to me. On that point, mainframe code, mostly written in the 70s or mainframes generally, runs 90% of credit card transactions in the US. 68% of the world's IT workloads across government departments like the IRS, National Weather Services, and 44 of the top 50 banks use mainframes in traditional systems and all the top 10 global insurers. Like This stuff ain't going away anytime soon. And at best... To avoid existential risk as a CEO, what you're going to do is you're going to build a sidecar. You're going to build and launch new products like Chase is doing in the UK with 10X and starting to do with Thought Machine. Like you'll gradually get there, but between now and then, all of the rest of your business runs on this infrastructure and you need to get more efficient on it. So that's a great opportunity. And then I went and looked for last week's brain food at the business process outsourcing market. So people who just run these processes for you, like Accenture, Capgemini, Wipro, all those sorts of guys. 
And that service alone is a $260 billion revenue market growing at 9.4% compound annually. Uh. That's crazy. UiPath is an $8 billion company by market cap because it does a, a lot of this sort of, you know, bits of this problem, not necessarily all of it. So it? I think as a category, we're going to see sustaining innovations really start to, to take off because there will be some places where you just need something that's really good at the magical duct tape that humans can do. That sort of contextual, highly variable, weird set of tasks that only humans seem to be able to do and are very, very hard to automate in, in some sort of binary fashion. So manifesting that, manifesting a world in which people who are outsourced in, in another part of the world get paid the right wage and can be more creative and can do things that are that are exciting, and that the world of hiring gets better. Like, oh, I'm, I'm manifesting things. Maybe it's maybe it's time to manifest something. Ah, uh, well. So speaking of manifesting, do you mind if I give you mine that I would love to see something come out of? And I've ranted about this on other podcasts, but we haven't talked about it, Simon. So allow me to rant to you for just a moment. If oh, I, can. I love a rant. Okay, so I would like to see something, and I don't know what that something is. Maybe it's a consulting company. Maybe it's like a sort of UI, UX, sort of web design, marketing agency type thing. Maybe it's a fintech product. Maybe it's infrastructure. But what I would really like to see are CDs, certificates of deposits, become sexy again. Okay? So when I started my financial journey as a 16-year-old, I got a checking account. And the second thing that I got was a CD. And when they told me how a CD worked and what it was, I was like, wow, this is actually really cool because I can get a higher interest rate than I'd be able to get otherwise. Now, this value proposition is a little bit challenged by super high rates right now, but let's just set that aside for a moment. And it's time locked in a way that obviously is beneficial to the financial institution because they have the deposits for a set period of time and they know that and they can plan around that. But also from my perspective as a consumer, there was something very intriguing about like, do you know the marshmallow test with uh, toddlers that they do? No, but I like the sound of marshmallows and I'm very hungry and I have a Well, table. you'll have to try this with her, okay? Because what you do is it's like this scientific experiment and it's basically measuring like willpower. And so they put a marshmallow in front of a toddler and they oh, say- Oh, jump to jump tomorrow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're like, you'll get two marshmallows if you can just wait for one minute or five minutes or whatever. And then they leave the room and they basically test out like, at what age do you develop the ability to sort of like figure out, can I save this marshmallow and get another marshmallow later? And like three-year-olds, I have a three-year-old at home. They're terrible at it. They're just like, nope, I'm eating the marshmallow. Like that's just not going to happen. And I even remember when I was, you know, 16, there was a bit of a marshmallow test in my head of like locking this money away, having the money grow, sort of segmenting the money that I have between money I need right now, money I want to get interest on, but that I want access to, money that I don't need that I can really set aside and invest for the long term. And it's kind of in some ways like training wheels for like investment, wealth management, saving for retirement. So I find certificates of deposit to be a very useful and sort of unique financial tool for consumers. And in the age of banks not knowing what's going on with their deposits, not being able to model out deposit betas correctly, worrying about liquidity, worrying about ACI and all of these sort of mechanisms for managing their balance sheet, 
the ability to have more time lock deposits where you know contractually you have those deposits on lock until this date, that's not a bad thing for them either, even if they have to pay up slightly higher rates for it. So I think CDs need to make a comeback, Simon, and I would like to see them integrated into more fintech products. I love, love, love that. So banks are facing a market in which the cost of funds is going to have to increase. They can't pay the rates they have been without expecting deposit flight. Um, and they're already seeing it. Like JP Morgan had $200 billion of deposit flight. Like it's just absolutely nuts. At the same time, credit quality is starting to decrease. So I'm having to, my supply of deposits is getting more expensive. My credit quality is decreasing. Oh, and by the way, I can't necessarily increase. So I've got less demand for my product. So my supply is getting more expensive. My demand's going down. I don't want to increase the cost of my supply just yet, but what if I did this other thing? And what if I didn't do it just on the call deposit account? What if I did it on what we would call in the UK a notice account? So you have 30, 60, 90 day notice or one year, two year fixed, that sort of thing. And that just makes intuitive sense for me like it needs the consumer to know it but we've talked a lot in the past about behavioral psychology that set and forget stick it over there ignore it it comes out of you you don't even feel it now imagine this payroll apis they all hate being called that but i'm talking about atomic pinwheel finch you guys payroll service take my direct deposit and automatically suggest that I move it into and give me an automation to just move it into a savings account that I can't see unless I really break the seal. Like actually be my personal financial manager. That would be really, really cool. Yeah, bring it back. Bring it back. There's a big, big need for this. It doesn't have to come back in the scary broker deposit way. I know Kia Hazlitt, if you're listening, like we're not talking about brokered CDs where you're just paying up a huge rate and bringing in this really, really aggressively hot money. Like Young people need CDs. I don't think, I mean, someone who's 16, they don't even know what CD stands for, either in the compact disc sense or in the certificate of deposit sense. And I can't do anything about the former, but maybe I can do something about the latter. So that is what I would like to manifest. Simon, do you have anything that you would like to manifest beyond what we've talked about? So I wrote recently, I ranted recently about bank and fintech partnerships. Yeah, Um, an excellent rant if, if people haven't read it, by the way. And... Every bank wants to buy from fintech companies. Every fintech company that does infrastructure and doesn't compete with banks wants to sell to them. Why? Well, all of their fintech company marketplace, some of the companies are going bust. Some of them are out of business. The growth isn't what it used to be. Solution suggested by VCs and everybody they talk to is go enterprise, go sell to enterprise. And guess what? It's an amazing idea. Like a a bank will sign typically a three-year contract and they will sign it for a lot more money. They're much more demanding though. They're going to want service level agreements. They're going to want all kinds of compliance certifications. Yeah. And selling to them is really, really hard. You've got to get an advocate. You can tell they're bureaucracies because everybody can say no, but nobody knows who says yes. So like figuring out how to get anything done is incredible. I think it was Cornerstone that discovered that 50% fail to actually go live. Yeah. So about half fail. And it's just absolutely crazy. And here's the thing that wasn't said in that research, but if you have a bank in your pipeline as a fintech company, that might make up a significant part of your, a material part of your pipeline. Maybe you have two or three. 
How do you know if they're for real if you've never worked in a bank, if you don't understand how bank procurement works? Are you even on the approved supplier list? Do you know what an approved supplier list is? Do you know what policies apply? There is a company in the UK, in fact, there's a couple, Tech Passport and Naya One that are like concierge services. Mm. Naya One even works with the Financial Conduct Authority to provide synthetic data so that you could test your widget against realistic bank account data to, to kind of help with some of that stuff. But the reality is for most banks, they have this like weapons grade procurement that's designed for going to war with IBM and Oracle and, you know, coming out of that alive. And they're applying that and all of the terms and conditions to tiny startup with 100 people, 200 people that doesn't have the same sort of legal team. And they yeah. have totally unrealistic commercial terms and expectations. So there's this giant mismatch between the two. So what I am manifesting is a dating service for bank fintech partnerships. I am manifesting something that actually holds the hand of both. And I found myself accidentally becoming this person for the market, and I think it needs to exist for this reason. Somebody at a bank will read one of the four fintech companies and say, hey, could you introduce me to them and can you help me figure out which desk inside my bank do I need to land this on? Interesting question. Uh, somebody in, in a fintech will come to me and go, do you know any banks looking for this widget that we sell? And so you end up sort of doing this matchmaking almost constantly. And the context in both directions is completely missing. There are very few people who've actually worked in a fintech company and have worked getting partnerships for banks. And if you're out there, whoever you are, get in touch because there is unbelievable demand for what you do right now. I love it. I think that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, it reminds me of banking as a service where we do have a little bit more of this matchmaking that's popped up. But like, that's just one, let's be honest, very like narrowly focused use case for how banks and fintechs can work together. There's a broad universe of other ways they can and should be working together. And there's no matchmaking service for all of those other ways. Yeah, there's fintech, the supplier who does the internal process. And there's fintech, the distribution mechanism for your balance sheet. And then there's everything in between, which is like some sort of back and forth part. There's all kinds of stuff. I love it. Well, you heard Simon say it, so it must be true. Please manifest that. Please also help us make CDs sexy again. Simon, thank you for taking the time to walk me through this uh, educational, insightful, and full of passion as always. I appreciate it. Thank you for being possibly human and not a generative AI, uh, successfully parenting three children and still being th both the nicest and most insightful guy in fintech. You're just, how do you do both? It's really irritating. Uh. You should stop that. I would like you to stop, <laughs> but I would like you to never stop. Please continue being Alex Johnson of Fintech Takes. You're a hero. Ah, well, you're the man, Simon. I appreciate you. And uh, let's do this again sometime. All right, you know, if you, if you ask nicely, but not <laughs> not as nicely as ChatGPT did, because that was weird. Yeah, that was a little bit awkward. Uh, all right, well, we will pick it up again. Um, Simon, thank you, and thank you to our listeners. We will see you again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend. <laughs>